The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Sunday means little without Good Friday. The, the two of these things just go hand in hand. And I'm so excited to be able to speak on both of these great occasions this year. And uh, as we've been journeying through, if you're visiting with us, we've been as a church journeying through a series called To Bring Us Home, which has kind of been our Easter series. And it's been based in the book of Leviticus. And we've been looking at different ideas and, and themes and theologies that run through the book of Leviticus and how they lead into Easter particularly, but the Jesus story as, as a bigger narrative. And uh, we, we looked the first week at this idea that because of um, the first human sin in the Garden of, of Eden, there's a sense ever since of a longing to come home because God, in His judgment, ex- exiled them from His presence, cast them out, drove them out of His presence. And, and since that point, there's been this longing and this search to return back, to come back to home, and how this search leads to frustration and death because nothing else other than the grace and the love and the, and the kindness and the generosity and the relationship that we can have with the Father will ever satisfy that longing. And yet humanity throughout the years have, have pursued and tried to, to find their own way home. And we talked about how worship is, is, uh, is the way of bowing our knee and surrendering ourselves to God is the way to come back home. And, and, and on Good Friday, we looked at Leviticus 16, where the Day of Atonement is this high point in the whole book uh, where everything else was kind of building up to because it shows that God Himself takes the initiative. God makes the first move. God, as it were, builds the bridge to... to cover the chasm of of brokenness that exists between humanity and himself from his end by providing Jesus to be our atoning sacrifice. And we talked about how Jesus offers us the way back home because He covers over our sin and He he cleanses it and removes it and He's our scapegoat that carried our sin outside of the city and He dies for us and fully pays for our sin so that we can be brought back to God. And so this morning, I want to look at another high point in Leviticus, and it's in chapter 25, and it's of the day of Jubilee, or the year of Jubilee, really. It's the year of Jubilee. And what's interesting about the year of Jubilee is that it began on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, every 50 years, the the priest would blow a ram's horn, and that signaled the beginning of the year of Jubilee. And so these two events kind of are intrinsically connected to each other. And so this morning, I want to look at the theme of Jesus, our Redeemer. On Good Friday, we looked at Jesus, our atonement. Today, Jesus, our Redeemer. Let me pray and we'll get into the Word. Father, thank You for this great day. Thank You for the resurrection. Thank You for the new life that we have in Jesus, that He is our Redeemer. And we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, will You captivate our hearts by the truth of the good news that Jesus is alive. Help me, Lord, to faithfully speak Your Word. And may our ears be open to hear what Your Spirit is saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, let me help you kind of get into the shoes of an Israelite just for a moment. Imagine, most of us would understand this. Most of us have a mortgage. Is there anyone here who's debt-free? No? Fantastic. I'm speaking to everybody. 
Some people are wonderful, so maybe you'll miss out on this. Uh, you won't appreciate this as much. Eh? But the rest of us who all have mortgages would probably appreciate this. Imagine that you're home one day and you get a call from your bank and they say to you that they want you to come in and have a chat with the bank manager. Now, most of us would be thinking worst case scenario. And so you're freaking out, you ring your husband, your wife, your kids and say, can you pray because my bank manager's called me and wants me to come and see them. And so you go in and you're sitting across from your bank manager and they pass you over the contract that you signed when you took out your mortgage. And on it, you notice it says paid in full. And the bank manager looks you in the eye and say, your debt has been canceled, cleared, paid for, done. Your, your home is yours. Imagine, you, you're probably going, what have you been smoking this morning? <laughs> you, you, uh, you, you would be sitting there going, is this really happening? Like, how? You, you'd have a hundred questions as to why, how? And there would be no answers other than it's been paid for. It's done. You're clear. Debt free. Go home. Enjoy it. Imagine how you'd be feeling walking out of your bank manager's office that day. Imagine that, just for a moment, what, what that would feel like. And my suspicion is, the greater your debt, the higher you'd be jumping up. That is kind of a little bit like what the year of Jubilee would have been like for an Israelite. When that horn blew on the Day of Atonement, it meant something. It meant something profound and huge. And it meant that these years of of indebtedness and serving and working and labor and striving were over. It was done. You see, in in Jewish history or in, in the law, God set up a system to actually help his people. And so throughout Leviticus 25, God gives instructions as to how Israelites were meant to care for each other. And one of the things he set in place is that Jews were meant to only lend money to each other without interest. They were not allowed to charge interest of each other. It was meant to be an interest-free loan. That was one of the things that God set up. The other things that God set up is this idea that if any Israelite became really poor and financially destitute, they could do a couple of things. One thing they could do is to sell their ancestral land. They could sell that off and recoup some money and pay off any debts that they'd incurred and manage themselves that way. But God says that you, you, you can never permanently sell your land because it belongs to me. It's actually not yours. So it's kind of like this 99-year lease idea that you know, some of us know and we're familiar with. People own islands off the Australian coast on 99-year leases and stuff like that. It was that kind of deal. They never actually owned it, but they could lease it and recoup some financial benefit from it. The other thing they could do is actually sell themselves. Now again, God said... This is not meant to be slavery. And in Leviticus 25, God actually says that. When someone of your own people is financially in difficulty and they need to sell themselves, they are not a slave. Treat them like a hired worker. A hired worker. But still, there was this sense of obligation and duty and a debt that had to be paid. Now, the year of Jubilee addresses all of those three scenarios. And so I want to point out three kind of significant things about the day of Jubilee and then jump ahead into the New Testament. The first thing that the year of Jubilee ushered in is this idea of rest. 
rest. And we've come across that in the Old Testament. If you've read through the Old Testament and you've been a part of PCC for a while, we've done whole preaching series on the idea of Sabbath and rest. And the year of Jubilee was meant to also be not just a day of rest, but a year of rest. Now, what's interesting about that is it came on the back of a a Sabbath year. So they had two years of no work because the Jubilee year came at the 50th year. And every seventh year was a year of Sabbath. So this is seven sevenths, 49 was a year of Sabbath. And then the 50th year was another year of Sabbath. And God in Leviticus 25 says, don't worry about what you're going to eat because naturally that would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? Well, if we're not meant to sow, and we're not meant to reap, and we're not meant to farm our lands, how are we going to eat? This is what God says. Don't worry about that, because I am going to bless you so much, so much in the year before the Sabbath, that even though you might have two years of Sabbath, you're going to have plenty to take you through till the sowing and reaping begins again. God promised that He would bless them. And so the Israelite could rest. The land had to rest. The people had to to rest, no work in the year of Jubilee. The second thing that is profound about this was that the, uh, the whole Jubilee idea was about release. It was about releasing people and enabling them to return. Uh, just a couple of verses. Uh, Leviticus 25 Verse 41, it's probably one of the key verses in Leviticus 25. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Verse 13 says something similar. In the year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. This was about releasing them from all of those obligations they had made. See, what happened in the year of Jubilee was all the land that had been leased had to be returned back to the ancestral owners. All the people that had made themselves hired workers that were in slavery, if you like, in bondage, were now released. Every debt was canceled. All monies owing were cleared. All debts were released. The whole point is that people could return back to their homeland, back home as we've been talking about. You see, that's the the amazing thing about the year of Jubilee, and that's why there was so much joy and celebration, because this was meant to be a year, verse, uh, verse 10, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land. That was the whole point, that when the ram's horn was blown, it proclaimed liberty and freedom. It was this declaration that everyone was now released and could return home could return home. The other way that this could happen was through this figure that appears in Leviticus 25 called the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. The idea being that, okay, if I you know, got into financial difficulty and I needed to kind of put my, my house, my land, uh, sell it to another person and they paid for my debts and all of that, then a rich relative that I'm yet to discover, um, if there was a rich relative who was loaded up and cashed up, they, yeah, they could come and say, okay, I am going to redeem Hillary's house and property by paying off and cancelling all the debts. Or if I was in servitude and in, in, in a hired worker in someone's house, my kinsman redeemer could come and do the same thing and release me from my obligations. Another way that God said is that, that own, the same person who'd given up their property and given up themselves, if their circumstances change, if they suddenly won the lotto, even though that's not in the Bible, um, and became rich or their financial situation changed, they could redeem themselves 
But if all else failed, the year of Jubilee was coming. That's the point. That no matter what God had set in place, this immovable, unshakable reality that a year of liberty and proclamation would happen every 50th year that meant freedom, liberty, release, and return home for everyone. The third thing that kind of picks up on this idea is this idea of renewal. Renewal. It, 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 Jubilee represented a fresh start, a new day. See, God set Jubilee in place to make sure that there was no oppression in the land. You'll notice three times God speaks about this. In verse 43, He says, he says Do not rule over them ruthlessly. Verse 46, he says, you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Verse 53, he says again, do not rule over them ruthlessly. This idea God put in place to prevent oppression, to prevent a class system where there were the haves and the have-nots, there were the rich and the poor. God set in motion this year of Jubilee to be a leveling again. Where on this 50th year, everything was made new. No matter what your debt was, no matter what your circumstance was, on that day, on, in that year, everything was made new. It, you got a fresh start. There was a new beginning. There was a leveling of everything again. It's kind of like some of you, uh, I don't know if you've ever played Monopoly. My family and I, we, we love Monopoly. And I noticed that so many people don't play by the rules, which is a little bugbear of mine. I'm a bit of a legalist at heart. And one of the most popular house rules is the idea of free parking. And most of you who've played Monopoly know that the way it's meant to work is that you just park there for free. That's the official rules. But a lot of people, house rules, what they do is if there's any fine that you have to pay or any debt, it all gets put into free parking. Right? Or this money, or in the middle, and the money just kind of piles up and piles up and piles up. And when you land on free parking, you're supposed to get all that money. It's not in the rules, I'm just telling you. <laughs> you're all rule breakers if you're doing that. But one of the things that that did when you played that way is this idea, right? You know, people would be hanging out. They'd be kind of counting the number of squares to get to free part. As that money went up, everyone wanted it because it was like a new beginning. It was a fresh start. It didn't matter how much in debt you were. No matter how far back you were in the game, you could be coming last, and that thing could be a game changer. And that's why it's not in the rules. Day of Jubilee was that for people. It was a game changer. It made everything new again. Renewal. So that's what brought about this rejoicing and joy when that trumpet went off. Because it represented all of those things to the Israelites who heard it. And were like, yes, Jubilee is here. And now we come to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus makes this profound statement. And it's a very well-known well passage. And it's Jesus talking about his ministry and what he was here to do. And he quotes from Isaiah 61. And many Bible scholars believe that Isaiah 61 has so many jubilee themes in it. 60, 61. And Isaiah is writing a message of hope to a whole bunch of people who were enslaved, not to fellow Jews, but to a foreign power, Babylon. And they were in exile. They were away from home. They were away from the land. They were in bondage, imprisoned in a foreign country. And Isaiah is writing these chapters, giving them a hope that God was about to do something new. 
And it was about bringing them back home, back to their land, setting them free from bondage. And Jesus picks up those words and he says this in verse 18 of chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, listen to these words, to proclaim good news to the poor. That's jubilee. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. That's jubilee. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. That's jubilee. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's jubilee. Jesus is saying, I have come to proclaim the final and ultimate jubilee of Yahweh. To proclaim this incredible good news that you don't have to be enslaved anymore. You don't have to be bound anymore. You can be free and be brought home again. Jubilee. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a slave though. I'm not bound. I'm not in prison. Why do I need liberation? Why do I need freedom? Why do I need rescue and redemption? Why why do I need these things? Well, the Bible in Romans 6, Paul talks about this idea and he says that since Adam and Eve rebelled and rejected God and they disobeyed, that we're slaves to sin and we're slaves to wickedness and impurity. That somehow this idea of sin that's inside of us imprisons us and traps us and binds us. And Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 8. He said, the person who sins is a slave to sin. And the Bible talks about other forms of bondage that humans are under. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that we're slaves to the fear of death. And that Satan holds us captive, imprisoned by our fear to death. In Galatians, Paul talks about uh, a lot about how we are enslaved by the law. And what he means by that is that, and we, we can testify to this, all of us know in our hearts the right thing we're supposed to do. And we, we might not have a biblical moral code, but we have a personal moral code even. We have an ethical code inside of all of us, and we can't even live up to that. We regularly and constantly violate our own internal law, which shows that we're slaves. We're slaves to our appetites. We're slaves to our ego. We're slaves to our selfishness. We're slaves to our lusts and our passions and our desires. And we cannot discipline and control ourselves no matter how hard we try because we're slaves. Slaves. But the good news of Easter is that our kinsman redeemer has come. And in Hebrews 2, the writer uses that kind of language. He says, because we were made of flesh and blood, he was made flesh and blood so that he would be just like us. Our kinsman redeemer. And he came to rescue us, to liberate us, to set us free from the fear of death. And he does that through his resurrection. Look, look at some other Bible verses. Hebrews 9.15 says this. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's language that says you're going to go home now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He's come to die as a ransom, to pay the price owing for your sin. You see, the the price that we owed, the debt we owed is a perfect life perfect life. That's what's owing. And none of us can pay that to God. None of us have the capacity, no matter how hard we work or strive or we try to be good and do the right thing, we can never ever pay that debt. 
So Christ comes and he lives a perfect life, which is why in John chapter 10, 45, when Jesus is talking about his own ministry, he says, I have come to, to serve. Listen to that language. It's the same word. He says, I've come to become a slave. Why? To liberate slaves. I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom, ransom for many. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I love this passage, verses 18 and 19 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. No, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The price was a perfect life, and Jesus was the perfect life, the perfect slave who lived a perfect life and could die as your ransom, as my ransom. But then the question is, well, that's great. That's Good Friday. What, why, why Resurrection Day? Why is the resurrection important? Well, the, re- the resurrection is so significant because without that, we wouldn't know that the debt was paid. We wouldn't have any confidence. We wouldn't have any assurance that the debt is canceled. It's like, if you like, the receipt of payment in full. When God says, I accept that payment. I accept the sacrifice of Christ. I accept the perfect lamb. I accept the perfect life that was lived. And I accept the death on your behalf. Now your debt is canceled. It's kind of like when you go to Costco. I don't get this. But, you know, when you walk out after you've paid and after you check out, there's a lady or a guy standing there with a clipboard. Have you ever had this experience? If you haven't, you know what I'm talking about. Go check it out. You'll see. And she wants to see your receipt. And Dash and I always forget. We kind of pay. We put the receipt in our bag and we get to the door. We're like, oh. So we're digging around for the receipt and she's just standing there. And, you know, she gets the receipt and she puts it on her clipboard and, she, and he or she counts all the items and looks at the receipt and goes, yep, okay, all good. I'm going, seriously, I've just come through the checkout. I can't walk out any other way. You know, I've paid. That's the only way they've even let me out here. But she won't let you out of the store until she sees proof of payment. That's what the resurrection is. It's proof of payment. And Tim Keller makes this point, and it's profound. He says, God can no longer, can no longer, this is something God cannot do. Hold against you or me any charge for sin. If he was to do that, he would be unjust. God's justice demands that he forgives you and clears your charge because the debt has been paid in full. There is nothing owing. There is nothing owing. So for God to hold anything against you would be an injustice. It would be like the Costco lady saying, you know, I'm sorry, you can't take that item out of the store. I'm not going to let you do that. You'd be sitting there going, but hang on, I've paid for it. It's right there on my receipt. It's paid for. Why can I not take it out? And if she insisted you, you keep it behind, that would be an injustice. That's what the resurrection provides. And the other powerful thing about the resurrection, and this is in Colossians 2, Jesus doesn't just come as our kinsman redeemer. He doesn't just pay the ransom that we owed. He also destroys the slave masters. He destroys sin. He destroys uh, our slavery to death. He, he destroys Satan who holds the power of all those things. And that is why we have the assurance and the conviction that liberation is here for us. That we have freedom. That we are truly free because Jesus has destroyed our old masters. Listen to what it says in Colossians. 
For he forgave all our sins. There's the ransom part. Having canceled the charge. Look at the language Paul is using. The charge of our legal indebtedness. He's canceled it, which stood against us and condemned us. We were in slavery. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's the Good Friday part. And having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Next, is there another slide? It's the one before that, I think, refers, the verses before that. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your heart, God made you alive with Christ. See, that's why we have assurance. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Day, because he is risen. And it is the receipt, and it is the destruction of the very powers that held us enslaved. We are free. And so Jesus does provide rest. We don't have to strive and work to earn our own salvation anymore. We don't have to keep working to pay off a debt that we will never be able to pay. It's like once your mortgage is gone, most of us would retire. Isn't that true? Because that is the, the biggest part of our debt. That's what Jesus said. All debt has canceled. So why would you work for your salvation anymore? Rest comes, just like the Israelites knew on on the Jubilee year. Rest. And there's release. We're not bound anymore. Jesus said in John chapter 8, the very chapter he talked about being slaves to sin. He says, who the Son sets free, we sang it, is free indeed. It's free indeed. There is release, and there is release to live a new life. And that's why in in Romans 6, the same passage that Paul talks about us being slaves to sin. He says, but now we're dead to sin. Sin has no mastery, no control over us, because now we have a new life, and we're alive to God. And we can bring the members of our bodies and surrender them to God to live for Him, and to live in His new life, and to live for His purpose, and to use the members of our body for holiness and righteousness, because we have a new life. And Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the old is gone and the new has come. Renewal, release, return home. So what are the implications of all of this? Three that I want to leave with you. One, you've got to know that you're free. You've got to know that you're free. Choose freedom. Choose freedom. And I'm, I'm preaching this to you so that if you don't know this to be true, then you now know that there is a freedom that God offers you. But you have to choose it. You have to choose it. There's a story told about um, how, and I believe this is true, how they trap elephants. Uh, you've probably been to a circus like me and you've seen these massive, massive elephants. And they're kind of sitting, you know, standing there and they're eating. And they're just chained to the ground with a chain. And a stake. You've probably seen that. Have you ever wondered how that elephant can be kept there with just a chain and a, and a stake? Because the truth is that elephant is much more powerful than that chain or that stake. It can just pull it out really, really easily. But it never does. Have you noticed as they're standing there and how they're moving their legs? And when, when they move the leg with the chain, as, as it clinks, they stop. They don't even try. See, what happens is often those elephants are often elephants. And people from circuses, they go and they get these orphaned elephants. And when they're really little, they put them on that chain and they drive the stake into the ground. And when that elephant is little, it can never move that chain. 
It can never pull it out of the ground. You know, people say you have a memory like an elephant. That's why. See, that bondage gets so ingrained in that elephant's mind from pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling against that chain and never being able to get free that it comes to believe that it's always going to be in bondage. And that little elephant grows up and it becomes this mighty, powerful, incredible force and it never breaks free because in its mind, it's always going to be enslaved. So often, we live like that. You see, God offers us freedom, but because we're so used to being enslaved, we can't believe that it's true. We can't believe that this is reality. We, we can't believe that I can actually be free. I can actually go home. I can actually be restored to God. To my, we, we can't believe it because we're so used to the bondage. So it's not enough for me to say to you, you're free. It's not enough for me to say to you, Jesus, your kinsman, redeemer, has ransomed you. Jesus has destroyed your slave masters. He's broken the chain. You're free unless you choose it and say, Jesus, I want to receive the freedom that's only found in you. I want to put my faith and my trust in your ransom and believe in my heart that my debt is paid in full. You've got to choose it. The second thing I want you to, and sorry, even if you're a Christian here, it's still true. It's still true. That's why Paul in Galatians 5, he writes three, three chapter 3, 4, and 5, and he gets to chapter 5, verse 1, and he reminds these Christians, it's for freedom's sake that Jesus set you free. So don't be enslaved again. Don't be enslaved to fear. Don't be enslaved to sin. Don't be enslaved to insecurities. Don't be enslaved in your mind and in your heart again because Jesus has set you free. Don't, don't go back to having to strive and earn your salvation and work to, to, to appease God and to pay your debt on your own. It's done. Choose freedom. Secondly, and if the band can come up, live to honor the Redeemer. Live to honor the Redeemer. Live for the Redeemer. That's the implication of all of this. There was a story told about Cyrus, who is a historical figure, a Persian king, I think he was, and he went around and he conquered parts of the world. And, and the story is told of, of this Armenian prince and his wife who were among his captives. And this prince loved his wife dearly. And this particular day, they were brought in front of Cyrus into his throne room, and Cyrus was sitting on his throne, dressed in all his regalia and his finery. And they brought this couple in, for Cyrus to pronounce judgment. And Cyrus turns to this Armenian prince and says to this prince, what will you give in exchange for your kingdom and your, the life that you had? If I was to pardon you and free you, what would you give in exchange? And he, this prince looks at Cyrus and says, King, I, I don't hold any of those things as precious. I don't really care about my, 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 uh, my royalty and, and the life I had. I, I really don't care. I just have one request. Will you consider releasing my wife let her go free and for her freedom i will gladly give you my life and cyrus was so impressed by this young prince's devotion to his wife that he released them both and on their way home back to their area and their domain this young prince turns to the wife and go man wow did you did you what did you think of cyrus wasn't wasn't he awesome wasn't i mean wasn't he amazing wasn't he such a awe-inspiring king and figure. And his wife turns to him and says, I don't know, I, I didn't notice. He's like, what? You didn't notice? Like, 
Where were you? What were you, what were you? what were you preoccupied with? She said, I couldn't take my eyes off the man who was willing to die for me. I didn't care about his pomp and his regalia. I was just consumed by this man, by you and your willingness to give up your life for me. That's the implication of this. That's the implication of Easter. We who have been pardoned, ransomed, set free, released to live for the Redeemer. Which is why, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul can say, how can we live for ourselves anymore? We should live for the one who died for us and rose again. Let's live for Him. Let's live to honor Him. And and these passages in the New Testament were written in an honor-shame society where those who were pardoned and those who were forgiven were obliged, as it were, to then pay homage and give honor and be of good reputation to the one who rescued them and redeemed them and set them free. How much more should we who've received eternal inheritance, eternal pardon and forgiveness, live to honor our Redeemer Jesus? Thirdly and lastly, we should be people who make this freedom known, to be proclaimers of this freedom. You know, and the interesting story is told of Abraham Lincoln in 1892, I think it was, September 1892, he signed the, uh, the proclamation of emancipation that brought freedom to slaves in America. And in January the next year, 1863, um, legally and officially, every slave was free. But the problem is, it, it didn't make any difference to the average slave who didn't know about the emancipation, emancipation proclamation. And so what the, the soldiers did, the Union soldiers did, was they, they rode around in the middle of the war with all these flyers and leaflets, copies of the Emancipation Declaration, and they were handing it out to slaves saying, you're free, you're free, it's law, it's legal, you don't have to be a slave anymore, you are free. It was not till that point that the legal official freedom that was enacted became real to those individual slaves. Friend, there are people out there, people you work with, people that you study with, people that you go to school and uni and college with, people who live in your neighborhood and street who don't know that there is freedom in Jesus. It's true. Christ has done it. But they don't know it. And we need to proclaim it. And that's why our sermons, our theme for this year has been radiate. Because we need to get out there. It's wonderful to celebrate Jesus in here. And we're going to do that. We're going to end with singing and worshiping and praising Him. But our calling comes into effect when we leave here. That we are carriers of the good news. Proclaimers of the good news. Let's blow the ram's horn in our community. Blow the ram's horn in our neighborhood that proclaims the year of liberation. And declare that Jesus has come. The Spirit of God has anointed Him to bring good news to the poor to set the oppressed free, to release prisoners. And he's proclaiming the year of God's jubilee. And it's available for you. This morning, maybe you're here, you're visiting, somebody invited you and we're glad you're here. But I want to challenge you to consider, do you know this freedom that is only found in Jesus? Have you been working so hard to pay this debt that you know that you owe to someone, whether you acknowledge him as God or not? I want to tell you good news. Your debt's paid in full. And you can receive pardon and release and rest and renewal and a new life in Jesus. 
And at the end of this service, we're going to be praying for people. And I would love, if you'd like prayer, for you to come and and talk with me and ask me any questions you have and, and to be able to pray with you so that you too can know Jesus as your personal Savior and Liberator. And I'd love to do that this morning. Why don't we stand? And we're going to sing. But before we do, I just want you to take a moment just to reflect, to consider, to think about what I've said. Think about what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you this morning. Maybe you've been wrestling with guilt and shame. Maybe you're not living in the fullness of the freedom that Jesus has accomplished. May this Resurrection Sunday be a wonderful reminder that you are free.